So today we are continuing our series in James. I need to get my phone out so that I have the time in case, in case I start running long. Um, yeah, so we're continuing our, continuing our James series. Um, so when Pastor David kicked off our series a few weeks ago, um, we talked about our theme. And what we're calling it is wholehearted, wholehearted. Uh, and so we're talking about the book of James as this call to wholehearted Christianity. Um, God doesn't want just a, a confession from us that Jesus is Lord. He doesn't just want our, our Sunday mornings and our Friday nights, but he wants our whole hearts. He wants everything. And James, the, um, the brother of Jesus, is serving as our guide um, to wholehearted Christianity for this sermon series. So um, let us get into our study for tonight. So two weeks ago, Pastor David introduced the book to us, and then um, we took uh, one Friday to look at um, verses two through eight, um, which talked about suffering. And today we're continuing with verses nine through 11. So turn with me to James 1, verses 9 through 11, and then I'll read it for us. Turn to James 1, 9 through 11. Okay, I'll read it for us, and then, and then we'll pray. Follow along with me. James writes, Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Let's pray. God, when we read your word, it is not just words on a page, but it is you, our very God, the one true living God speaking. These are your words given to us through James. And so we ask that we would submit ourselves today as we receive from your word, that we would humble ourselves, recognizing that these things that you have said to us are life and death words. They matter. Would you help us to take this time seriously but also to have much joy as we receive, as we recognize that you have spoken to us clearly, that you have given us everything that we need for life and godliness in your word. So would you enable us to receive this word with joy? And would you glorify yourself as we live transformed lives in light of it? We ask these things in Christ's name, amen. Who here has ever been to a wedding? Anyone been to a wedding? Awesome. So um, some of you might know that I used to work as a freelance photographer. And I had a few opportunities um, while I was working as a photographer um, to photograph weddings. And if you know anything about weddings and the American wedding industry, there's a lot that goes into making a wedding happen. There's the caterers, um, the, you have to work with a venue, there's somebody who emcees, there's a DJ, there's an efficient. Um, there's a wedding party, coordinator, makeup artist, all these different people who come together to make this event possible, right? And so out of all the jobs that are involved in a wedding, what do you think is the most stressful and the hardest job on a wedding day? 
out of all the, all the jobs, what do you think is the most stressful and the hardest? So um, raise your hand if you think it's the coordinator. Yeah, the wedding coordinator. Or what, do you, what about maybe the efficient person who, who's like standing up in front? Or maybe the photographer? Thank you, Darren. I, <laughs> that's very kind of you. So I'm sure that like everybody has their own opinion about maybe who has the hardest job at a wedding. But in my opinion, I, like having worked in the industry, I actually think that the florist has one of the hardest jobs for the Saturday event. And I'm sure that not everybody feels that way. I'm sure that florists don't feel that way. Um, uh, and, but the main reason why I get really stressed about thinking about wedding florals or flowers for a wedding day is because flowers die. They die really fast. If you've ever like, purchased a bouquet of flowers from like, Trader Joe's or whatnot, you know that the moment that those flowers get cut from their root, they're going to die really, really quickly. Like the clock is ticking. With proper care and refrigeration, plant food and water, a florist might be able to extend the life of a flower um, and maybe maintain its beauty for a little while. But the moment you remove those things or expose the flowers to the sun, those flowers will wilt and wither just like that. And a wedding florist has to manage like hundreds of flowers and put together bouquets and boutonnieres and centerpieces and archers in just like hours while keeping them alive just to see all of their hard work end up dying at the end of the, of the night. Like you, you get to the end of the wedding and people are like throwing away the, the flowers and, and it, it's just depressing because it just goes into the trash. At the end of the wedding, uh, one of my favorite moments, but also the saddest moments, is when, like, when the, um, the wedding party will like, rush to hand out centerpieces and bouquets to people. They're like, here, do you want flowers? Take them all with you. They're beautiful. I spent so much money on this to, to, to make my, my wedding beautiful. Please take them with you. Uh, but everyone is like, no, I'm okay. Um, because they know that those flowers are not going to last. Like You're going to get home. And you'll put them in a, in a vase maybe, and they'll look pretty for the night. But then you wake up, and they're like wilted and brown and ugly. Those flowers are not going to last. And because they're not going to last, they're not worth holding on to. Our passage in James today talks about flowers too. Flowers that wither and die in the midday sun. Ephemeral life that blossoms and then passes away. But the flowers that we're not t- talking about are not, are, are not ordinary flowers. They're not wedding bouquets. These flowers are you and me. They're people whose beauty flourishes and perishes like the flowers of a wedding bouquet. And in this ephemerality of our mortal, flame, mortal frame is a lesson from James on wholehearted Christianity. So our key idea for today is this. Wholehearted Christianity looks like boasting in Jesus and not in riches. In the first eight verses of our, of our book, James jumps right into his letter and he talks about suffering. We saw this this, this past week. Count it all joy, right? Pastor David had this, that sponge illustration that he used last week to help us see that when Christians get squeezed by the trials of life, 
What is supposed to come out of them is joy and wisdom. But then in verse 9, all of a sudden, James turns to address what seems to be a completely different group of people, namely the poor and the rich. He refers to them as the lowly brother and the rich. And pretty much what he tells them is, your life is short, you're going to die. So let the poor brother boast in his exaltation and the rich brother in his humiliation. So that's like a summary of the text. But what exactly is James saying here? Like, what does it mean for the poor brother to boast in his exaltation and a rich brother to boast in his humiliation? And why is he talking about it here in verse 9, right after talking about suffering? So there's a lot to think through here for our passage, how it works together with James, why he's saying the things that he's saying. And it's all really important for us and our understanding about our own lives. So um, what we're going to do is we're going to walk through this passage word by word. Um, and we're going to try and get, get a sense of what James is trying to communicate to us about wholehearted Christianity. So first, before we get into the content of James's commands here, let's um, think about structure and context. So why does James address the issue of money here? Like why, after talking about suffering, does James start talking about money? So whenever we read the Bible, we always want to be reading it in its context, right? Both its literary context and its culture, um, its cultural context. And the Bible is a real document a, with a real story written by real people who lived hundreds and um, thousands of years ago. So even behind these uh, letters like this from James, um, even letters that are instructive on how to live life, there are these real people and real stories and real difficulties. And James originally wrote these words to put them purposefully um, in, in, or to help these people purposefully see their, light, their lives in light of God, to see their circumstances in light of who God is. So to take us into that world, um, look back at James 1.1. Sometimes this verse kind of gets like pushed off like as a, as a side detail, but it's really important for us to understand the world that Paul, not Paul, sorry, James is writing to. James says at the beginning of his letter, James to the 12 tribes of the dispersion. So this 12 tribes is a reference to the 12 tribes of Israel. So the audience, that, the people that he's writing to are clearly Jewish but this second phrase, in the dispersion, indicates that these Jewish people were specifically Christians, Jewish Christians, who had been scattered all around Israel and beyond. And we know this because the book of Acts tells us about how in the early church, uh, the, the Christians were getting spread all over the world due to persecution. The Jewish authorities at the time didn't like Jesus and they didn't like Christians, um, because Christianity was thwarting Jewish religious power. And the government, um, governmental authorities didn't like Jesus because of all the social and religious upheaval that was happening at the time. So persecution against Christians was really, really common. And specifically, Acts 12 tells us that there was this king in Jerusalem named Herod Agrippa who was killing and persecuting Christians causing Christians in Jerusalem to have to move elsewhere to survive. 
So that's the, the context of this letter. We have James, pastor of the Jerusalem church, writing to these Christians who are spread all over, who used to be part of his own church, who had been forced to uproot their lives, leave their homes, and move all over the Middle East to escape persecution. It's like if we were suddenly under the intense persecution from government, the government in California and had to leave. And then Pastor David wrote us a letter, right? Our, our beloved pastor who loves us and cares for us and cares about our well-being in Christ. So naturally, we can uh, assume that some of the people hearing this letter are dirt poor. They're just trying to get by both physically and spiritually, as they face new environments with foreign people who are hostile to them and who definitely want to take advantage of their sojourning. Life is really hard for these people. They don't have jobs. They don't have their homes. They don't have everything that they left in Jerusalem. Elsewhere in the book, we see that there's the danger of wealthy landowners taking advantage of them, rich people hauling them into court and people scorning them for their faith. So when James says, count it all, all joy, brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, we can easily conclude that some of the various trials that they're facing are, regar are in regards related to finances, which is why James specifically has things to say about being poor and rich. So that's the context, that's the world that helps us understand what James is saying, specifically in verses nine through 11. So let's look at our first point, boast, verses nine and 10. So the first thing that James says in verse nine is let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. So as careful students of the word, let's think about each part of the sentence to understand what he's getting at. First he says, he refers to these people as lowly brothers. He addresses the lowly brother first. And when he says brother, he specifically means Christians. We use this language too, right? When we like, call each other brothers and sisters in Christ. And lowly here reminds or brings to mind the outcasts and the poor of society. The fact that they were spread all over the world, out away from their home, away from what they knew. The people who have been regarded as little value to the world because of their low social standing and their lack of finances. So James specifically speaks to these lowly Christians and he says, boast. He tells them to boast. So the verb here for boast is an imperative. Um, you might've heard that word before. It's just a fancy grammatical term for a command. It's a command. Um, so it's not, he's not just saying like, oh, poor, poor Christians should boast kind of thing, but it's, it's a command, like poor Christians boast, do it, boast. So, and I usually try and, and represent that in our notes when I put like an exclamation point beside a command. So usually when we think about boasting, we think of pride. We think of that friend at school who always declares that she got an, ex an A on her last exam or the quarterback who shows off how far he can throw a football. Like usually our parents are telling us um, that we shouldn't boast, right? We shouldn't be prideful. It's not becoming of a Christian. So why then is James commanding us to boast? In this command, I think that James tells us here that boasting itself isn't necessarily the issue. 
It's what, boast, it's what you boast in that matters. Boasting itself does, is not the, the issue. It's what you boast in that matters. And what specifically James tells these poor Christians to boast in is in exaltation. Exaltation. The word for exaltation that James uses here is used elsewhere in the Bible to refer to heaven, where the ascended Christ now rules, a heavenly realm that Christians belong to. So when he says, boast in your exaltation, he's not talking about some change in their financial situation as if somehow they're gonna get a whole bunch of money and they'll be able to boast in their riches. No, James is, is speaking of a spiritual exaltation, a position of high status that is theirs in Christ. They're to boast in what is spiritually true about them despite their lack of money. And for James readers in a Greco-Roman context, humble financial circumstances most likely meant humble social status. If you didn't have a lot of money, you weren't worth much to the world. And we might, see, we might say that we feel the same pressure in our own lives. But what James is saying is that low status in the eyes of the world does not mean low status in the eyes of God. This poor believer is just as valuable to God as a rich one. And so James is saying that the Christian who finds himself to be lowly in stature, maybe despised in the eyes of the world, not powerful, not rich, not having accomplished much, should have a confident assurance of his elevated status. Though he might not feel special, he is exalted. Not because of himself or what he's done, but because of God. James passionately wants us to know that we don't have to have a lot of money to be worth something to God. We are worth something because God loves us and has made us citizens of heaven. And it's in that heavenly status that we can boast. I think this is a good opportunity to characterize what this looks like for Christians. And so in your notes, I, I included a big list of truths about who you are in Christ on the back of your sheet. So I, it starts with, if you are in Christ, and then there's a long list of all the things that you are in Christ. And what I mean by, by this is, if you know that you're a sinner, desperately in need of saving from judgment for your sin, and if you have run to Jesus and his life, death, and resurrection alone for salvation, then all of these things are true about you. I'll just read a few of them. You are declared righteous before God. You are alive. You are clean. You're forgiven. You're regenerated, redeemed, adopted, indwelled by the Holy Spirit, sealed. You're a co-heir. You have peace with God. You're blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. You are all of these things in Christ. And these are incredible truths about who Christians are because of Jesus that are true of us if we're saved. And these are the things that we can boast in, not in what we have or what we've done. James points the lowly believer to exalt in who he is in Christ but this perspective is not just for the poor or the lowly brother. It's also for the rich. So like in verse 10, 
Not only does the lowly brother need to boast in the reality of, he- of his heavenly home, but so does the rich brother. If the lowly brother is the one who has been treated as insignificant and worthless because of poverty or low social standing, then the rich brother is the one who has been exalted in society, the one who's been treated with favor, and the one who's been held in high esteem due to his power and his money. But the same command is applied to this rich brother. To him, James also says, boast. But specifically, boast in your humiliation. So we should understand this in the same way that we read verse 9, that James is telling the rich Christian to look to the future and understand his true status. He says, just because you've been exalted so highly in this life, doesn't mean that you'll get special treatment in the life to come. And James helps us understand further that the pride, um, the prideful should boast in, hu- in humiliation because one day, verse 10b, like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. At the end of the day, the rich man will die just like the poor man. At the end of the day, rich Christians are sinners in need of grace too. And they are saved only by the blood of Jesus Christ, just like the poor brother. At the cross of Jesus Christ, everybody stands on equal ground. Everyone is condemned before God's righteous law and everybody is dead. No one has the upper hand. Everyone needs the same gospel and the same grace to come to Jesus. And the amount of money you accrue in this life will not translate in any way to riches in heaven. You will die, and you will leave your riches at heaven's gate. Thus, the rich man has an especially significant opportunity to show in this countercultural way the, the, whole, the nature of wholehearted Christianity. Paradoxically, he is united to this lowly brother, this lowly Christian, and he boasts in the fact that he, they both together belong to Christ. So to summarize, in these two commands to boast, we see that wholehearted Christianity means looking beyond what is temporal to what is eternal. It means understanding who you are and interpreting your world according to the reality that heaven is your home. You are made for that world and not this one. And so James speaks to both the lowly brother and the rich brother because both need biblical wisdom in the midst of their finances. He knows that whether you're poor or whether you're rich, money will be a particular difficulty and threat to living wholeheartedly for Jesus. And so whether you're poor or whether you're rich, you need to see your life in light of where you're going and not where you are now. Now, James totally could have ended the the idea at verse 10. Poor brother and rich brother, look past your temporary circumstance to what is eternal and boast in what is true about you eternally because this life is passing away. He could have just stopped there. But instead, he goes on in verse 11 and he says, for the sun rises with its scorched heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes, so also will the rich man fade in the midst of his pursuits. Excuse me. 
So why does James keep going? Why is there more to say? I think he keeps going because he knows that we need extra convincing. James knows the dangers of riches. He recognizes that the rich man will go on worrying about wealth without seeing the perishing beauty of his own life, and then he'll fade away in the midst of his pursuits. He'll be so busy trying to make a lot of money that he'll end up dying before he realizes that he was concerned about a temporary thing when he should have been worried about eternal things. Now, before you only identify yourself with the poor man and just move on with what James is saying, compare yourselves to the original recipients of the letter. Compare yourself to the poor migrants who, excuse me, Compare yourself to the poor migrants who had been forced out of their home in Jerusalem due to their faith in Christ, who are now mixed into churches with other Christians who are much better off. They're Jews facing suffering and persecution for allegiance with Christ, people who have lost everything that they have to follow Jesus. That's not you. That's not me. We experience the safety of roofs over our heads, of food to eat every day that's provided to us. You enjoy the gifts of education and extracurriculars and art. And I think that's why James adds the comment in verse 11 and why it's especially beneficial for us who live in our, own, in our 21st century American context. We need to listen to verse 11. Why? Because we are rich. We are so rich. And because we are rich, we face the particular danger of getting distracted by what is passing away, what is ephemeral, instead of living for what is eternal. Yesterday, I found this website called howrichami.org. And it's this website um, that calculates how rich you are compared to the rest of the world. And I, I, there's like this tiny little footnote at the bottom of the website that gives references to sources and, and studies that it's drawing from, but it, uh, uh, it just ends there. So I don't actually know if this is like legit or like helpful. Um, but just out of curiosity, I looked up the average salary of a teenager working a part-time job in California, which is about $15 an hour. And so if you work $15 an hour, um, 20 hours a week for 52 weeks of the year, and you'd make about $15,600 in a year. And after taxes, it's about like $15,250. So that's not a lot of money um, because apparently the average salary of an American is like three to four times that. So 15, or it is a lot of money, but compared to a salary, it's not um, in America. And so just for fun, I plugged that into the, cal the calculator website, uh, howrichami.org. And according to its data, a teenager's salary in California would make you, or a part-time teenager's salary in California would make you richer than 86.5% of the world. Okay, so I didn't know what sources, I didn't look into it, like, or how updated the information is or whatnot. But I just want to illustrate to you how extremely, like, affluent and therefore blessed by God 
Um, we are just by the fact that we live in America. Like, we get, you, you all could go get a job at, I don't know, Blaze Pizza and get paid that and make more money than 86.5% of the world. And it wasn't like um, you earned any of that. Like in God's kind providence, for some reason only, only known to him, God chose that you and I would be born into our specific stewardships and specific financial situations and opportunities. And what we have is vastly more than the rest of the world. So when James warns the rich brother that he will pass away in the midst of his pursuits, just like the flowers and wild grass under the scorching heat of the sun, he's talking to us. Now, I don't mean to share statistical data to make you feel guilty. That's, like, what I don't want you to take away from this is that our financial struggles aren't a big deal just because the rest of the world has it worse than we do. That's not what I want you to, to think. And, and there will absolutely be times of financial difficulty for us. It's practically guaranteed to us that we will experience the suffering and the squeezing that God, God ordains as our paychecks suffer and as I, our wallets get squeezed. And there will be probably like levels of financial blessing for many of us too in the future. And we should praise God for, for all of that. But the wholehearted Christian who is set on wholehearted devotion to Christ and wholehearted wise living will say, I boast in Jesus in the face of both financial exaltation and humiliation whether we face financial blessing or financial struggle, the wholehearted Christian lives in light of the reality that one day our riches are gonna fade away. No one takes their money into heaven and all you take with you is you, like your, your body and your soul, that's it. You don't take your house, you don't take your car, you don't take your money. And all of this is just as true for the poor brother as it is for the rich brother. But the reason why James only reminds the rich brother that he will pass away in the midst of his pursuit of money is because the rich brother, you and I, are prone to forget more easily than the poor brother. When life is easy, when the money is just flowing in, when you're getting everything that you want in life, then you're more at risk of forgetting God. When you succeed in your pursuit of money, it's so easy to find security in it. It's easy to forget that you are just like those wedding flowers. You'll wilt in the sun and it'll be over before you know it. Later in the book, James describes life as a breath, a vapor. You breathe it out and poof, it's gone. So we have to live with clarity and focus, recognizing that we aren't home yet and shaping all of our view of the things that we have in light of where we're going. There are a lot of different applications to this passage and like how we actually go about boasting in Christ could look so different day to day. Um, but because most of you aren't actually making money for yourself, most of what you can do to apply this passage for your life now is preparatory for the day when you do have to manage your own money. 
And at the same time, there are areas in your life where stewardship and, and um, wholehearted Christianity are required of, the, of you in the, in the things that you do have. So the two applications that I want to commend to you today are gratitude and stewardship. Gratitude and stewardship. So gratitude can look like a, a, like a lot of different things in your life. But I just, I just thought of three really simple things. Today, boast in and thank God for Jesus. Praise him for the eternal hope that you have in heaven. Because of Jesus Christ, you don't have to fear security or lacking security for eternity. Because of Jesus Christ, you can confidently say that I have a heavenly home even if my earthly one passes away. The second one that I wrote down is, is thank God for the specific circumstances that he's put you in. Take stock of how God has been abundantly kind to you. I was thinking about this, this, this morning. I'm trying to apply this to my own life. And the first thing that came to mind was I, I was just thankful to have woken up today. Thankful to have another opportunity to just live another day and to have breath and to have strength. I, I praise God for letting me eat breakfast, for having food to eat. I praise God for providing clothes for me to wear, for being able to avoid, uh, afford the things that I need for school and for work. My encouragement to you is day by day, take stock of these small things and look for graces um, and that God has provided in your life and thank him for them. Taking stock of these things encourages a heart of gratitude, one that helps us to be faithful in boasting in Christ even when finances are hard or life doesn't go the way that we want. The last thing that I wrote down is thank your parents for their provision for you. Money is a really hard thing to handle. There are decisions that your parents have to make that are really difficult and, and they're constantly making sacrifices for your good that oftentimes you don't recognize. So maybe you, you could just say to them really simply, like, thank you, mom and dad, for, for supporting me, for um, making sacrifices for me, for providing for me. Thank you for setting the example for me and for handling so many hard decisions that, and financial circumstances that I don't understand or can't handle yet. It's a really, really simple way to honor God and honor your parents. That's the first application, gratitude. The second application that I want, want to make is stewardship. Uh, and I think I put it in your notes. I wrote, yeah, the way that you use your finances will display who you live for. Use your finances to show who your God is. The applicational principle that I think James wants us to come away with um, from this passage, from verses 9 through 11, is that you boast in what you hope in. You boast in what you hope in. Um, and we probably could say that in a bajillion different ways, like you worship what you love, you live for what you love, you're, where your treasure is, there your heart is also. Um, and, and so the point is, the way that we use our money is a way that we show the world who our God is and that we live for him and we boast in him and not in ourselves. And we don't have time here to talk about all the nuances of wisdom and saving and long-term stewardship and all that. But um, for yourselves as young people who aren't managing a lot of money at the moment, for now, 
Or what are those ways that you can show that Jesus is your God and not money? For example, something that I try and do um, whenever I buy something is I just ask, like, does this thing help me boast in Jesus? Does buying this thing show that my wholehearted devotion is for Jesus? Not myself, not for the world, not for the things that I have, but for Christ. A lot of times there are days when I fail to answer that question correctly or, or fail to respond to my answer in a way that honors God. But there are also a lot of days when that keeps me from living as if my God is money instead of Jesus. Praise God for that. Another example is you can show your wholehearted allegiance to Christ by giving your allowance to missionaries and churches who are advancing the work of the gospel all around the world. It's a great application for, um, for our outreach month that starts in a few, a few days. Another very relevant example of how you can boast in Christ and not riches. Many of you are applying to colleges right now. And while that might be a very like, common, maybe even expected thing for you in, in our community, in our, our, our world, the majority of the world does not have access to the great wealth of education that you have access to. Most people in the world don't get to go to college. And even being able to apply to a university is, is a huge display of wealth. And yet, um, all of you, as you apply, will be tempted to boast in that wealth. You'll be tempted um, to make this thing what defines your worth. You'll be asked on your applications to make much of yourself. You'll be judged by your peers based on what schools you apply to, which ones you get into, and which one you actually go to. You'll be tempted to think that your undergraduate school will be this like stamp on your forehead of either worthy or unworthy. And if you go to a really prestigious school, you'll think, oh, then I'll get that worthy stamp. And um, if you go to like a, a community college, then um, you'll, be, you'll get the unworthy stamp. You'll be tempted to boast in where you actually go to school. But what does James say in light of that? or in response to that. James tells you not to boast in the riches of your education, but boast in your humiliation. Boast in the fact that you have died with Christ and have been raised with him. So as you apply, um, when you get in, when you go, and when you graduate, you can show who your God is and, and where your hope is by boasting in Christ and not your alma mater. At every point, you have the opportunity to confess, I am a great sinner, but Jesus is a greater savior. Because in heaven, nobody is going to care where you went to school unless sharing that information brings glory to God. Nobody's gonna care if you think you got into a good school and looked impressive in the eyes of the world. And in fact, you'll probably feel holy embarrassment and retrospective thankfulness for the patience and the mercy of Christ in response to your boasting, that you were so caught up with yourself when you could have been enjoying and making much of Jesus instead. The prestige of a college degree will wear off. And James wants you to skip that and enjoy what you will in eternity. 
Finally, a, a great way to boast in Jesus and not the riches of education is to steward your education for the advance of the gospel in the world. I feel like I say this all the time, but one of the best, I think one of the best ways that young American Christians um, can steward their education is by using their degrees and their jobs that they get with their degrees to take the gospel of Jesus Christ to places and people who don't have access to the gospel. This may seem like something that's like really far down the line, but I know that a lot of you are already thinking about what you want to do vocationally um, and how you're going to spend your lives. And for a lot of you, I think a, a lot of this thinking centers around how you can accrue wealth for yourself. But James tells us pretty straight up that we're going to die and money can't save us. So we should use the money that we do have and do receive from God for something that's going to last. So I challenge yourself, I challenge you to ask yourself, how can I boast in Jesus in the way that I use my money? And specifically when it comes to vocation and education, I want to challenge you to boast in Jesus by considering to go abroad Go to countries where people don't have the gospel and spread the gospel by just being a normal Christian, loving and serving the local church in places where missionaries aren't allowed to go. That's a great stewardship of the riches of education and a great way to boast in Christ over finances. So to close, to summarize, at the end of the day, you are going to die. And when you stand before God and he asks you to give an account for your life, asking you, why should I let you into heaven? You're not going to be able to get out your diploma. You can't show him a screenshot of your bank account and be like, look, God, look at how much money I made. Let me into heaven. You and I are sinners We've rebelled against God. We are his enemies deserving of condemnation in hell. And there is nothing that we have done, nothing that we've earned for ourselves, nothing in us that can merit or create the righteousness that we need to be accepted by God. Nothing. And the only chance that we have is if we say, nothing in my hands I bring Simply to the cross I cling, naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace, foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. James wants the script for what we'll confess before God on that day to be the words that fill our mouths every day until we are delivered into heaven. If you are poor, boast in Jesus. And if you're rich, boast in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the clarity of your word, for how you do not leave us to understand or try and figure out how to live a life of godliness on our own. But in your perfectly sufficient word, you have provided for us the exact pathway a picture of wholehearted Christianity. And so, God, I ask for us that we would be able to set our minds on our eternity. That if we are in Christ, 
if we have confessed our sin and trusted in him as our Lord and Savior, that we have nothing to fear, whether our bank accounts are empty or whether they are full of riches. If we are in Christ, we have an eternal heavenly home to which one day we will be delivered only by your grace. And we ask that every day until then would be shaped by that eternity, that we wouldn't get distracted by this pursuit of riches that keeps our attention off of Christ until one day we figure out that we wasted our lives. But would you help us, God, to steward every opportunity for riches and every circumstance of difficulty and pain in our finances for the glory of Christ, to make much of him, to show that our riches are in Jesus Christ and the future that we have in him and not in that which we can accrue for ourselves now. And would Christ be honored in our lives and put on display in such a way that the rest of the world looks at it and is curious and is convicted of the idolatry of riches. God, um, though many of us don't have money to manage, though many of us maybe don't worry about finances a lot, though many of us um, still have, uh, are, are not burdened by the difficulties of, of um, lacking um, in, in wealth or having much, would you help uh, the, this youth group to prepare in wisdom for the future? Uh, for the day when you do entrust, um, if you will, finances to these young people as stewardships for your glory. And would you use our discussions in small group now to help prepare their hearts for a future in which you do entrust those things to them so that when they are faced by the temptation to boast in their riches, that they can rather say instead, I boast in Christ. I ask these things in your name for the glory of your son. Amen.